Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn, and today we are joined by my friend Michael Meharry. Mike is the Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center. He proudly resides in the original home of the Principles of 98, the state of Kentucky. He is the author of the book, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty. He's been a contributor to LCI in the past and and also runs his own website on politics at michaelmahari.com and another website specifically about Christianity and liberty at godarchy.org. Mike was one of our speakers at the first Christians for Liberty conference in 2014, and we'll make sure to provide a link to that speech in our show notes here. Today, we're going to touch on a number of topics around American history, the Constitution, nullification, and hopefully we'll get to some of Mike's views on liberty and faith as well. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Norman. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, having having a flashback memory. Do you remember the first time we met? Uh, I believe it was actually at one of the, um, the, the nullification rallies that we held in Austin. That's absolutely that right? right. It was like probably maybe 2010 or 2011. Yeah. 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 And uh, this is what I was remembering. The first time we actually met, there were, you guys were doing some type of little like anti-war rally. Yes, we did. Yeah, well, that's the, right. Yeah. Anti-war rally on the on uh, Guadalupe Street in Austin, Texas. Exactly. So now this is what's funny. Looking back on that, I was totally freaked out by that because I was pretty <laughs> much still in my neocon face. And so like, the whole anti-war thing. I was a little bit uncomfortable with that. So I just took a bunch of pictures and kind of pretended like, you know, I was being a journalist. So <laughs> now I'd be like totally down with it. That's also the first time incidentally that I met Scott Horton, which is, you know, oh, really? Yeah. Huh. From, from, for somebody who is, like I said, still a neocon face. Can you imagine Scott Horton being one of the first people oh, in the Liberty my. movement that you ever met? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> for some of our listeners, if you don't know Scott, Scott is the, has been the long time uh, host of the anti-war radio show. Uh, at antiwar.com and is a wonderful guy. Uh, he's a he's originally well, I don't know if he's originally from Austin, Texas, but that's where I met him back in grad school, way way back. And uh, he's a he's a really fun guy. I really love him. And uh, yeah, we've we've uh, we've been friends a while. So that's a, that's and, funny, Mike. I'm not sure I knew that about you. And and I know I mean I remember that was when we first met. But man, I, I'm not sure I knew that about you. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. Um, so much has changed. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so much has changed. Well, maybe maybe we'll get into some of your journey there, too, eventually. Uh, but because that, that would be really cool to hear, because I, I certainly don't know all about uh, your past in that respect. Um, but as we all do when it comes to uh, liberty and, and our faith, we all come from somewhere. And, uh, and not many of us started off uh, just as straight up hardcore libertarians. Sometimes it takes some education to get there. And so that'd be it's cool that that, uh, that your pathway, of course, has has a history that's some some maybe a little uh, unique in this respect. You know, your your background is is really fascinating, though, to a, a lot of people in our movement because of how you've been involved in a topic that has kind of captured the public eye is sort of indirectly uh, in, in many respects, but directly in others. So let's talk a little bit about this. This is nu- the idea of nullification. 
And so for, for those of us on, who are listening who may not be familiar with the term itself, how would you, in like 30 seconds or less, describe nullification for the neophyte? So actually, we have a kind of working definition that we use at the Tenth Amendment Center. And to understand it, you kind of have to think about the two different definitions of nullification. You have a legal definition, which simply means to render something legally void or null. So, for instance, if a judge uh, overturns a law or overturns something on a constitutional basis, he's nullifying it. It literally wipes it off the books. But then there's also what we would call the popular or common definition of nullification. And that's basically just to make something null, void, or simply inoperative. And that's the term that we use more at the Tenth Amendment Center to explain nullification. It's basically any act or set of acts that is taken by a state or a local government or even an individual that serves to make a law null, void, or ineffective in effect. So it could still be on the books. But it's not being enforced. It is, in effect, nullified. So perfect example, if you're driving along the freeway and the speed limit's 55 and every single person's going 80 miles an hour, that speed limit is effectively being nullified. It's on the books. I guess, theoretically, the police could pull one or two people over. But for all practical purposes, that law is is completely ineffective. So that's what we're doing at the Tenth Amendment Center from a political perspective. We're looking for ways to nullify unconstitutional, overreaching federal power through state action. Okay, so so essentially nullification means to render a law null. And uh, and so that there's a bunch of different ways in which that kind of occurs. You've given us a, you know, a handful of them. What is the principle or background in this historically? Uh, do we, you know, we don't typically hear about just going out and telling the, the federal government just, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, but but there is some precedent for this, right? I mean, what is that, historically speaking? Yeah, absolutely. There's a long history of nullification in the American system, and it's really based on the fundamental structure of the American government as it was conceived by the founders. And this isn't really something that you're taught in your high school or college history class, because obviously government schools have, in effect, defined the narrative. And so a lot of this stuff has been essentially erased and thrown down the Orwellian wormhole or memory hole. And so this actually goes back, this concept goes all the way back really to the ratification debates. But where nullification was first formalized was by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in 1798 in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were uh, pretty draconian laws, the Sedition Act being the worst of them that effectively made it illegal to criticize the government. So Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote two documents, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions of 1798, which were passed by those state legislatures. And here they laid out this concept of nullification. And in effect, what they said was that the states created the federal government, the Constitution creates a union, and through that Constitution, the states, the people of the states, delegated certain powers to the federal government. It retained all other power and authority to itself. So therefore, as the creator and as the entities that created the union, they have the authority in the last resort to determine what the powers of the federal government are, what those limits are, and, and when the federal government oversteps its bounds, that a state has a right and a duty to nullify or render void these unconstitutional acts. So 
that was the the philosophical principle. I mean, we're looking at the person that we call the father of the Constitution and the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, who both said that this was the proper role of the states in the American system. Now, they never really said in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions what that meant or how you did it, but James Madison actually gave a blueprint for this concept in Federalist 46 before the Constitution was even ratified. He said that when the federal government oversteps its bounds, he said the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. And he listed off a number of things that people and states could do. He talked about uh, basically throwing a fit, you know, uh, the agitation of the people. He talked about uh, legislative devices. But I think the best piece of advice he gave was a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. And those are the exact words that he uses in Federalist 46. He said that when states or individuals or localities refuse to cooperate with the federal government, it would create impediments and even obstructions, which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. And the reason that this works is because the federal government has very limited resources. It depends on states to do pretty much everything. If you've ever watched, like a uh, seen a news report of a drug raid, there's always state and local police involved. Almost everything, you have state and local cooperation. If the state's or the locality just simply refuses to cooperate, says you do it yourself, most of the time the federal government can't do it itself. And that's where we've seen this work in, in very powerful ways, particularly with the legalization of marijuana and hemp. But we can take that same concept to any number of issues from healthcare to gun control to sound money. When the, fe- uh, the states and localities simply refuse to cooperate, then it renders the, uh, the the federal government pretty much, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, impotent. One fascinating piece that maybe, maybe people don't always think about here that I always, uh, you, you, you hinted at, or no, you explicitly said it, but the states precede the federal government. And that's like the central point of, where, or perhaps the starting point. Uh, that is where this begins. The idea that the states, because they preceded the federal government are in effect superior to it. Even though we have these ideas of what they even call them one, like the superiority clause is that may, I may get that name wrong, but, uh, but you know how the federal government may have uh, juris, jurisdiction over certain things or whatnot, but still this, the notion that the states are, are the predecessor to the federal government is really central here. And that, that alone, that idea seems to be something that if we could just flip people's brains and just that switch in people's brains just once, then we make a big difference. Would you, would you agree with that? I mean, how, how, how important is that to just like general thinking about, you know, the United States and how it operates? I think it's the most fundamental conception of American political philosophy. I mean, that was the, the root building block And, and it's really not debatable. The original political societies in America were the individual states. And when I say states, I don't mean the government of the states. I don't mean the geographical borders. I mean the people of the states. So literally the people of the states are the sovereign in the system. That's where all power flows. And those states were sovereign and independent from the time that they were colonies all the way through the revolution, through the Articles of Confederation, uh, and and even into the Constitution. We see that that the power flows from the people of the state. So it is we the people, but it's really more precisely we the people of the states. And that really 
when you understand that, then everything else begins to fall into place because then you understand how power flows in the American political system. Most people think that power flows from Washington, D.C., downhill to the states and that the states are basically subservient. They're, they're in essence counties or political subdivisions of the federal government. That's absolutely wrong. The, the states are the power source, and they took a little bit of their power and they delegated it to the federal government. And they said, federal government, you have the authority to do these things. And if you look at the Constitution, these things are very few and far between. And most of that power was left with the states and the people. So when you look at what the states are supposed to be doing, it's pretty much everything, you know, from health care to labor laws to, uh, you know, policing, all of these things are supposed to be going on at the state level. Now, people object sometimes and they'll say, well, you know, state governments are just as bad as the federal government. I mean, what difference does that make? And and that's true. (laughs) Yeah, they are. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm not going to debate that. That's absolutely true. I mean, from, from my point of view, all governments are fundamentally illegitimate and they all pretty much suck. But The fact of the matter is I would rather have a decentralized system where there are 50 power centers as opposed to one power center. Because when there's 50, you at least have – it's like a marketplace. You at least have competition. I tell people this all the time. You don't get liberty through centralization any more than you get a good shopping experience from a Walmart monopoly, right? So (laughs) we want to decentralize the system, and the system as it was created is decentralized. And I think we would be a lot better off in the United States if we were decentralized. Let people in California do California. Let people in Pennsylvania do Pennsylvania. Let people in Kentucky do Kentucky. And it will eliminate some of this tension. Now, there'll still be some, but at least if, you know, if something happens here in Kentucky where I live, that's absolutely egregious that I just can't deal with. I do have the option of picking up and moving. Now, that's not necessarily an easy option, but I mean, ultimately, we're planning on moving out of here because the tax burdens in this state are so much worse than a lot of other places. So, uh, you know, we have that <laughs> Just opportunity. Just go to Texas, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll join you as soon as I can. <laughs> we're heading to, heading to Florida, which is oh, also right. pretty, pretty, uh, pretty bad. decent I'll tax base. Yeah. But so, so you see my point. You can, you can pick up and move. It's really difficult. You can do it, but it's really difficult to pick up and move out of the United States. And then even when you do, you still have to pay taxes to Uncle Sam, and you're still supporting the, the warfare state and all of that. And to get out of it, to, to quote-unquote renounce your citizenship, that costs you a bunch of money. So, you know, it's, it's decentralization is what we're about. And that's why I'm really – Uh, why I do the work that I do at the 10th Amendment Center. It's not that I think states are great or that states are going to protect my liberty. It's that I believe that a decentralization. Exactly. Well, and and it also helps mitigate uh, mitigate damages. You know, if you have 50 decentralized centers of power, then the, the amount of damage that a single one can do is going to be somewhat limited because of the scope of its or its of its reach. Uh, whereas the the more that you centralize and the greater that power structure is, then the 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 greater the damages that they can do. I mean, California can screw itself over, you know, with it with, for instance, anything from its and uh, its uh, certain egregious or really restrictive environmental regulations or uh, or Proposition sixty five or various labor laws or things like that, but they can't extend their damage into Arizona next door or Nevada next door or Oregon next door <laughs> to, to at least some 
significant extent. Right. You know, exactly. And, so, and you know, let's let's be fair to California. California well, does sure. some things good. Oh, sure. It, yeah. I, I say I say this for my my cohort, Michael Bolden, who's the uh, founder and executive director of the Tenth Amendment Center. He loves California. I don't think <laughs> he, he, he doesn't so, he yeah. doesn't love the politics of California, but he loves he loves that state. That's his sure. home. And, you know, there are some good things that they do. They're, they're really good on on surveillance and privacy issues, for instance, probably leading leading the way in terms of limiting uh, the surveillance state. So, you know, you kind of you pick your poison and. You know, let's be honest. There's a lot of people in California that want all that environmental garbage. And, oh, sure. I say let them have it and, uh, you know, keep it there. <laughs> and we can decide, you know, it's it's that whole idea of the de- Tocqueville who's talked about the laboratory of ideas that the, that the states right. were 50 laboratories of ideas. Well, let's look, you know, how about let's. California, why don't you do single payer health care? And let's see how that works. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 willing to let them do that. I would rather not experiment with here in Kentucky, but you know. Well, well sure, and, and to be fair, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I love Texas. I've, you know, lived there the bulk of my life. But I, you, you give me a platform, and I can yell for hours about the idiocies of Texas politics. I've, I'm I've sure. been in the thick of it, and as you well know, and, and, and boy, oh boy, do I have some things that I could tell them. I'm sure, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. But uh, yeah, I mean, because all governments, as as you noted, you know, they they are routinely able to commit atrocities, uh, whether both great and small. And so just limiting their damage, though, is a great thing. And so that's that's the wonderful the wonderful benefit of decentralization, even from the perspective of, of think like let's go. Even, we can go even smaller about, you know, with the virtues of decentralization. Imagine, you know, people sometimes like to say, you know, my, my homeowners association stinks so bad. Well, imagine if you tried to put them in charge of something really, really big right. and then you'll be really grateful that they're only able to deal with that little bit and then you can just exit. So <laughs> come on, guys. Let's let's keep decentralizing. It's a much better it's a much better means of getting what we want in the long run. Absolutely. And like I said, the system, that's the system that we have in the United States. And the beauty of this whole idea of non-cooperation that I touched on a minute ago, the beauty of it is that it's one of the very few things that has been maintained and supported through the American legal system throughout time. It's one weapon that we have that the federal courts are actually on our side. I'm not quite sure how this happened. Actually, I am sure how it happened. It, it (laughs) It actually goes back to 1842 and it was it was an attempt to actually centralize power more that kind of backfired on justice. Just well, let's just let's story. get to that. Yeah, because let's get to that. Because you know, one one other little thing here that I think is you know getting back to this idea of the decentralization before we talk some of those historical points that I, I, I it would be remiss if we didn't point it out. We even have this uh, flipped around idea about the United States being you know centralized versus decentralized in our language. We talk about, you know, in in the grammatical way we talk about the United States, we'll say the United States is as opposed to the United States are. And that alone is something that really like is, is kind of a novel concept, at least from, you know, from the perspective of, of you know, uh, the, the history of the United States. That's not how it started. And, it, and so perhaps it would, would behoove us at times to uh, actually flip that around in our own brains and, and just start talking about it that way and, then, and let people know that that is what it is. Yeah, but, I'll give uh, you another. I'll give you another perfect example of the, the awful, horrible Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, yeah, I mean, of course. I, I won't say it because I'm not going to pledge allegiance to a government in the first place. But, right. but even before I really came to that point, I quit saying the pledge because of this whole concept of one nation 
indivisible. Yeah. This country was never one nation indivisible. It was it was a union of independent republics. And this idea that it is one nation indivisible creates all kinds of horrible problems because you end up if everybody's trying to get these top down solutions. And, you know, libertarians are guilty of this, too. There's a lot of sure. libertarians who want to seize control of the central authority so they can impose liberty. Well, that's not going to work because yeah. when you give a power, more power, eventually what you're allowing them to use that power for is going to get turned against you. Politics will shift. The bad guys will get control of the levers of power and all of that that you gave them to impose liberty. They're going to use it to take it away. So, even, you know, the idea imposing liberty, like how does that how does that even work? <laughs> yeah, I use that. I use that very intentionally yeah, because that's what you're effectively doing when you when you try to create liberty with government. Right. You know, we can get government out of the way. That's that's the goal. But but to to create liberty through a through a government process is never going to work because again, it's it's dealing with raw power and to you know quote Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we basically have right now. A, a government in Washington, D.C. that does wield absolute power from a political perspective. Thankfully, we do still have the option of resisting through our state and local governments through these processes of nullification. People need to be more aware of that. And, and I wish people were more interested in doing it uh, and, and not just doing it when the guy they don't like is in power, because, you know, now all the right wingers, all of a sudden they don't like us. You know, they don't want to talk about decentralization. Now we've got the lefties who were calling us racist five years ago. Now they're talking about using nullification. So amazing that yeah. how that how that all works out. But let's let's go to the, some of the history then. And, and you, you know, you alluded to uh, in the 1840s this was used. But what are some of the early cases uh, that you know after after the uh, the Alien and Seditions Acts and some of those things that were where Madison and Jefferson were involved? What are some of the early cases from roughly there toward uh, say the Civil War? where nullification was used by the states to get rid or, or just render null something that was that the federal government was doing that was really bad. Well, it was kind of funny because when Jefferson and Madison uh, distributed the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions to the other states, by and large, they were not met with a great deal of enthusiasm. There were some states that were supportive, uh, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, I believe there was some some support for them in New Jersey, up into Pennsylvania, uh, but like the far northeast, New York, Massachusetts, those states absolutely said, "You can't do this. This is horrible. You know, you're going to ruin our union." Blah blah blah. The ironic, why do you think ironic, that was? Well, I'll tell you why it was. It was politics because <laughs> Jefferson and Madison were nullifying a or uh, calling for the nullification of a law that was particularly advantageous for the Federalist Party that was in power, which was primarily a Northeastern Party. When the yeah. Federalists were out of power 10 years later, all of a sudden they were actually using quotations from the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions to support their own politics and to call for the nullification of, for instance, they were refusing to allow British and, and uh, I think it was British ships to come into American ports. So it was a blockade. Or embargo is what it was. Jefferson's yeah. embargo. Uh, then during the War of 1812, those same states were resisting the uh, the first time that there was a draft. And you had these northerners who, you know, again, a decade ago were opposing this idea of nullification, saying it was the duty of the state to stand up and protect 
the citizen from being drafted into the military. Later on in the 1820s and 1830s, you had what was known as the nullification crisis, which is probably if you ever heard of nullification in your history courses, this is probably what you're familiar with. It was when uh, South Carolina was resisting what they considered an unconstitutional and burdensome tariff. Uh, John C. Calhoun was the primary driver in the South of this effort to nullify this tariff. It created this uh, It almost actually created a war right then and there. Andrew Jackson was talking about sending troops into South Carolina to force collection of the tariff. And uh, uh, ultimately, the federal government backed down. The tariff was lowered. Your history teacher will tell you nullification failed, uh, which is absurd because the tariff went down, right? So it was at least partially uh, successful. (laughs) But this is where you start getting into because it was John C. Calhoun, who was also a very vocal slaver. Uh, that's where you get this idea that nullification is racist. Okay. Yeah. And, let's get, let's kind of attack that a bit. What, why is that even? You know, why is that an issue here? And what what makes people believe that's the case? And why is it really not? Well, it's actually absurd because the truth of the matter is the exact opposite historically. Now, the reason people say it today is because it's a convenient political talking point. If you call somebody a racist, then that pretty much ends the conversation. You know, I'm talking about limiting the federal law. Well, you're a racist. Well, then nobody wants to talk to me because I mean, well, actually being a racist isn't bad anymore. They've, they've had to up it to white supremacist or like, (laughs) so. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings help us get the word out. And now let's get back to the show. But that's the that's the political rhetoric. Uh, The idea that nullification was ever used to support slavery is absurd because slavery was the law of the land. There was nothing to nullify. In fact, it was nullification that was used in support of nullifying was used in support of it was used to nullify the fugitive slave act of 1850 which i say is one of the most draconian laws that was ever passed it actually required americans to assist in the capture and return of the slave back into the south so if you were a northerner uh, you could be put in prison and fined a significant amount of money for assisting a slave so People that we idolize, like Harriet Tubman, the people who ran the Underground Railroad, they were nullifiers. They were absolutely defying the federal government and breaking federal law. I always like to bring that up to the, well, you always have to follow the law, people. You know, the, you, you hear those people out there that want to throw that around like, uh, right. like the law is always sacrosanct. Uh, they were absolutely blocking the Fugitive Slave Act. And it's interesting because especially in the far north, uh, once these states started passing what were known as personal liberty laws, which were specific statutes that hindered the apprehension of fugitive slaves, we could not find any incidences in Massachusetts and those far northern states where a slave was actually captured and returned south after these personal liberty laws were put into effect. So this was an effective method that was actually used to protect people who had run away from slavery. I don't know how you get from there to racist, but that's the that's the narrative that we that we get today. That's yeah, it's really incredible that that is the perception. And perhaps perhaps part of it is the, you know, kind of that flipping of the idea of, of federal supremacy that that in many respects does happen upon the Civil War, which is, of course, you know, kind of tied into this idea that that was necessary in order to free the slaves. 
And, you know, those of those of us with, you know, a little more circumspectness can realize that that, you know, you don't need to fight a war to, to free slaves, that there are peaceful ways of going about this, like what England did and whatnot. Um, but there's there's so many there's so many bad things that are caught up in, in the in the civil religion of the Civil War, if you will. And, you know, of course, we, there's no there's no question that slavery is wrong and all of that. We, we, there's no argument there to be had. The argument is more about what is proper, uh, what is the proper way of going about getting rid of policies that are oppressive as opposed to, you know, resorting to violence every moment in order and just ratcheting it up because, you know, slavery is violent in and of itself, but just, you know, ending it with a war is probably not the best way of getting there. And that's just, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we are, if, if you take the, you know, the, the civil religion of the civil war and, uh, that, that, that the state wants us to believe is that is that it, the state is necessary to execute these types of acts of violence in order to prevent other violence. Well, then, yeah, it becomes possible then to because if you can relabel things such as that that easily, then, of course, you're going to be able to just, you know, call anything that is uh, against it. You just relabel that because you have no problem with you have no problem relabeling and classifying it the way you want. Anyway, that's one of my uh, just a little a side a side note, I suppose, on some level, but perhaps relevant. <laughs> no, absolutely. I agree. I've, I've said this for a long time that if you try to establish liberty and if, if we take liberty to mean if we believe that part of this thing that we call liberty is not aggressing against other people, if you use a violent means to overthrow the old order, to create a new order, Ultimately, you're going to still end up with the old order because you're still relying on that same fundamental premise of <clears throat> coercion, force, and violence. Coercion, force, and violence begets coercion, force, and violence. Yeah. So, I mean, Live you can by look the at the sword and die by it. <laughs> exactly. You can look at the, the whole issue of slavery. Slavery was made possible through centralized power. Yeah. I mean, it was it was maintained by the United States. The United States was trying to maintain it all the way up through the point that the shooting started during the Civil War. Uh, it was the federal government. It was centralized power that was ensuring that slaves couldn't run away. It was all based on centralized power. So to say that, oh, the great centralized power saved us from slavery. Well, the centralized power started it in the first place. And yeah. a lot of uh, very smart historians will say that Slavery probably would have been on its way out in the South because it's really not a very economically viable system. It probably would have deteriorated on its own if it hadn't been for the political pressure that was coming from other regions and from the central authority to maintain this institution. And that created the, you know, we're, we're going to resist and, and so, you know, everybody locks their, their heels into position. And then ultimately you end up with, you know, however many millions of people died, uh, and, and, you know, again, we're not arguing that that slavery shouldn't have ended. And I hate when people try to, you know, make it into that argument because nobody today actually believe. Well, I wouldn't say nobody, but virtually yeah. nobody actually believes that slavery was a good thing or is going to try to justify slavery. And, you know, that's just a, an absurd position. Again, that's a, a political talking point that people want to use to shut down conversation. Exactly. But, you know, there there's a there's so much more that we can kind of go at then beyond beyond that with. You know, because nullification isn't something we, you know, we 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 hear about as much post Civil War. 
Um, but but perhaps you can enlighten us on some of that too. Are there instances of nullification, say from you know post eighteen sixty five up through say World War II, that are just underappreciated? You know, I think the whole idea uh, it, it really faded into oblivion after the end of the war. Uh, and it's interesting if you go back historically, the Republican Party was actually founded as a states' rights party. Um, if you go back and you look at, and the the Republican Party began to form. Uh, primarily in Wisconsin, in the wake of uh, the trial of a number of people who assisted with a runaway slave named uh, uh, Joshua Glover, and so there was actually a civil civil or a Supreme Court case in Wisconsin, and they were asserting that the state has the authority. They, they their assertion was that the Fugitive Slave Act was unconstitutional because primarily because it denied due process, and as a state. They had the authority to nullify that because they had state sovereignty. They were making the very same arguments, in, in some cases actually verbatim, that Jefferson and Madison made way back in 1798. But all of that flipped on its head uh, after the war because then we had the whole idea of union became sacrosanct and it became a nation. And really the whole the whole idea of state sovereignty, all of that was effectively – uh, buried and again tossed down the Orwellian memory hole. You really didn't see it start coming up until the civil rights movement. And unfortunately, you know, that's a place where you see, I think, nullification used in uh, what we would consider not a, um, a, a good, you know, it was, it was targeted at a policy that we wouldn't necessarily agree in. We don't want to keep Jim Crow laws in effect. Now, we could certainly have a debate about the structure of the United States and whether or not states had, you know, that's that's a different debate altogether. But that was really when we saw the idea of nullification come up. And I think that's probably why a lot of people instantly react toward it, to it towards it being racist. Uh, it's not inherently racist. It's a that's tool. interesting. Yeah, you know, it's it's no it's it's like saying that a hammer is a bad thing because somebody uses it to murder their spouse. Well, <laughs> you know. The 99 other times that a hammer is used, it's used for, for good purposes, and then you've got one time that it was used for a bad purpose, and so now the hammer is bad. That's kind of what mm. happened with the, with the idea of nullification. Uh, where we really saw nullification start to revive uh, in terms of a legitimate political process was in 1990s when California – decided that they were going to legalize medical marijuana. And of course, they weren't even calling it nullification at that point, but that's what it is. It was yeah. a state asserting, it, asserting its sovereignty. Yeah, it yeah. was. And, and and it was nullification, as we say at the 10th Amendment Center, nullification in effect. And really, that's the blueprint. When states, again, refuse to cooperate, simply say, we're going to move along with our own policies. The feds can do what they want to do. And the feds certainly did. I mean, the the effort that the federal government put into trying to stop uh, medical marijuana in California is, is much more robust and significant than people think. I mean, they had three presidents actually go to California and speak against legalizing medical marijuana. Of course, you had the famous Supreme Court case, uh, Gonzalez versus Rach, where the Supreme Court said that the federal government has the authority to regulate a plant in a woman's backyard. Uh, all of the effort was made at stopping this. And yet now today we have 32 states that have legalized medical marijuana. And we have, uh, I think we're up to nine or 10 that have legalized recreational marijuana. Uh, 
the federal government simply can't enforce marijuana prohibition anymore. It's over. It's over to the point where we're starting to see federal politicians uh, talking about, oh, we need to legalize um, legalize marijuana, you know, so they can take credit for it. But that's the <laughs> blueprint. So we can take that blueprint, and <clears throat> states could stop enforcing federal gun laws. Sure, states can put. Uh, laws in place to to in, encourage currency competition to undermine the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money. Uh, states uh, can Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin <laughs> gold, silver, other cryptos. Uh, yeah. We can do the same thing that we do with marijuana with hemp, which is actually something going on. I the other day, I, I'm having some some arthritis problems. I went to my local. Um, I guess you call it a head shop. That's what they call them here in Kentucky. Uh, but I went in there. I bought CBD oil. This is yep. illegal according to the DEA. See, right. and it's it's illegal. They the feds claim it is, and yet I walked right into a store, bought it off the shelf. You know, took it home. So you can apply this, like I said, to all kinds of DEA, FDA, uh, environmental rules. If the states stop enforcing and supporting these policies. The policies will not be enforced because the feds just don't have the the manpower and resources to do it. So this is the blueprint. We call it Madison's blueprint because he came up with it, James Madison. Uh, But it is powerful and it is effective and it needs to be used more. And the left is starting to realize this sanctuary cities. And, you know, a lot of people will will bristle at this idea. But there's nothing that says that a city has to force federal enforce federal immigration law. It can't. Legally can't step in and you know start arresting ICE agents or anything, but there's absolutely nothing that says, and the law backs them up that they have to use their personnel or resources to enforce federal immigration laws. Nobody is upset about sanctuary cities because they don't work. They're upset because it's effective, and they're upset because it's a policy that they don't like. But it's certainly legitimate uh, for for states or cities to simply refuse to enforce these uh, these federal laws, and it's. Again, powerful and effective, and I think we need more of it. Well, and then of course there's our uh, my my beloved example of of uh, trying to essentially do nullification against, uh, say, the TSA <laughs> in some of in some of my personal history, <laughs> which, yeah, uh, which you may recall. <laughs> yep, and here and here's the thing: nullification is not just an action by a state. In fact, right. I would say that nullification, when it's just an action by a government, isn't going to be terribly effective. And 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 as an example of this. We have seen states attempt to nullify real ID. The national ID system was passed in 2005 under President Bush. Uh, up to this date, it is still not fully implemented. We're in 2018, yeah, so what, we're goodness. 13 years. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, over the last two or three years, we've seen state after state cave. We've seen states that have actually had passed laws that they would not ever implement real ID, repeal those laws, and start the process because – Governments give in. Where you see nullification effective is when you see people who are willing to do the nullification themselves. Again, marijuana, people using hemp and CBD oil. Uh, I think we have this potential with people with guns. I mean, from what I've read uh, up in New York where they did the assault weapons ban where people are supposed to register their assault weapons, I think the compliance rate something in the neighborhood of 20 percent. Uh, we've seen <laughs> wow. uh, again in New York, which is which is kind of interesting because you think that this is a more of a lefty state. But uh, they've got huge numbers of people that are simply opting out of the common core testing. 
because they don't like it. Parents are just opting out. So when people are willing to do things that will create markets, because that's where the power is. The power is in in the marketplace. When people do things that they want to do and and do, as my good friend Robert Scott Bell says, uh, you know, stop asking permission where none is required. That's where you see real nullification. So so individual nullification is where it, where it's at. It's it's it supports state efforts and states can do things that can that can make that more effective. It's certainly, you know, for people who are using medical marijuana, it was certainly good when states create a legal environment where at least they don't have to worry about their local cop busting down their door. But it starts with individuals and then it moves up to the states. And then ultimately, like I said, the federal government, I I, I would almost guarantee that within the next decade, uh, medical or marijuana will be legal to some degree at the federal level because that genie is just never going back in that bottle again. That's a that's an interesting point. And but I, one question I do have for, that's relevant there, though, is that, OK, so so I am an individual, let's say I'm an individual that does that I do want to nullify something. And but I want to make sure that I'm also like, you know, not going to go in jail immediately. <laughs> what would you recommend to somebody who might have that concern about 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 performing a personal nullification, if you will. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you got to pick your battles. And I mean, I know for me, there are certain things, there are certain lines in the sand that I would be willing to go to jail to make that stand. And I, and I think at some point, if you value your your liberty, if you value your autonomy as an individual, that you have to have those lines. And, and it's going to be different for different people. I mean, I know some people who won't get a driver's license. I ain't fighting that battle, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not right. going to jail over a driver's license, but you know there are certain things, and and you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna show my hand because I don't you know who knows who's listening. That <laughs> you never be, know. <laughs> they might be listening, <laughs> um, but you know. But I, I think you know it's interesting because if you go back and look at the evolution of medical marijuana in California, and and I'll make a disclaimer here. I'm not a marijuana person. I've never smoked marijuana. The CBD oil is not marijuana. It's it's a hemp product. It's, it's um, an extract. Yeah. It's I, but but I, personally, I would not. Well, I won't say I would not. I you know if, if there were certain health things, I probably would. But um, just normal day to day. Yeah, it's not no something I'm interested. You have in. to say like I'm going to do it tomorrow in, in order to exactly. be able to be an advocate. So yeah, exactly. But I just want to make that clear because yeah, you know, yeah. some people some people will say, well, I, I don't want to do marijuana. You know, OK, this and I'm just don't using this as an example because yeah. it is a powerful example. But if you look, I mean, there were a lot of people that made sacrifices in order to establish medical marijuana in California because they believed in it. They believed that it was going to be beneficial for people to have this option for their health. And there were people that went to jail. And there were people that suffered financial loss and there were people that had to deal with a lot of negative things in order for there to be pro progress. And mm -hmm. I think that's true of liberty. We have to be willing, if, if we really believe this, we have to be willing to put ourselves not line. You look at somebody like Rosa Parks. You know, we all know the story. Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. What a lot of people don't know is Rosa Parks went to jail and she was convicted and she lost her job because of her activism. So it's not necessarily going to be without consequences. And of course, you know, I don't, I don't want consequences, but there are things that I think that, that we have to be willing to take a stand on. And it's interesting because if you go back and look at the early church, you know, the early church absolutely refused 
to participate in a lot of Roman civil society, particularly the religious aspects of it, because it conflicted with their faith. And hundreds and hundreds of Christians went to their death because they refused to sacrifice to Roman gods or refused to serve in the Roman army or refused to bow down to Caesar. And, you know, we look back on those people as heroes of our faith. And that was not, you know, we, we can't just gloss over the fact that, that there was sacrifice to be made. So, you know, to answer your question, there is no easy answer. You have to look into your own heart and your own conscience and look at, you know, what can I do and how far am I willing to go? And, you know, you can do things. You can get involved in, in political activism. You can get involved in protesting. There are a lot of things you can do short of doing the illegal act. Uh, if that's something that, you know, because we all have to balance that. We all ultimately we want to be free. I'm not free when I'm sitting in a jail cell. So you have to be smart about it. But for each person, it's 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 your conscience and it's between you and your conscience and God and uh, to make those decisions. But I think it is important in in the long run for us to say, you know what, these are things that I value and these are things that I'm willing to sacrifice for. Well, Mike, we have had a really great time discussing this, but before, and before we go, let's make sure that everybody knows how they can go out there, learn more about ideas of nullification, uh, and and so and also follow you on on the internet if they want to if they want to uh, you know catch, keep track of you and what you're doing, your articles and your work. So first off, let's talk a little bit about Tenth Amendment Center real fast. Tell us a little bit about that real briefly, and what can we do to kind of uh, to follow along and get involved there. So visit 10thamendmentcenter.com. It's all spelled out, T-E-N-T-H, amendmentcenter.com. And uh, just poke around on there. We, we post blog posts virtually every day. Uh, we per- post main page articles about every two or three days. And if you start just visiting the website, you'll see nullification in action. You'll get some of the history. Uh, you'll be able to read about some of the stuff that, that I've talked about today in more depth, the history, the philosophy. Uh, but you'll also see practically what we're doing and how we're applying these principles to these various issues, uh, particularly on the blog. Uh, if you like what we're doing, if you're interested in this, we can always use people who are willing to be members. You can do it for like as little as two bucks a month. Uh, that keeps the lights on. It pays the bills. Uh, you know, we're not uh, the eight million dollar a year budget heritage foundation or the you know whatever <laughs> is out there we're we're That's operating we on we're yeah we're we operate on under a six-figure budget so you know we're we're a five-figure organization but um you know we really appreciate that kind of support if you're interested in backing our work we're always looking for for volunteers people who are willing to uh connect and interact with legislators in their state people who are interested in blogging doing research all that kind of thing all of that stuff is our, over on our website, 10th com. There's a so, couple other things that people should definitely take a look at, too. Um, there, there's a book by Tom Woods called Nullification, How to is. Resist Federal Tyranny in the 21st Century. And a documentary called Nullification, A Rightful Remedy, uh, which I believe you were, you were involved in the production of that, as was I, uh, to yep. a certain extent, with the Foundation for a Free Society. And uh, you'll even see me, in, and I think you'll see Mike in the credits, too. Yeah, I'm in there. <laughs> and both of us are in the credits. It's awesome. Uh, to, so you can find that on Amazon if you like. And uh, but so there's a lot of ways you can keep learning about nullification. Am I missing anything else there? Well, I have to pitch my own book. Well, uh, oh, that's right. Yes, of course. Yeah. Tell it's us about called, that. 
It's called Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path of Liberty. And uh, it's available at my website, michaelmeharry.com. It's available at uh, the 10th Amendment Center store, and it's also available on Amazon. And uh, I kind of I take it, I kind of build on what Tom Tom Woods did. You know, Tom Woods, I think he wrote the, he he built the foundation with his book nullification. Uh, my book goes into a little bit more of the of the background and philosophy, a little bit more of the of the constitutional history uh, behind nullification. And then I also get into this idea of anti-commandeering, Madison's blueprint, and how practically we can uh, use nullification to limit federal power. So I uh, always appreciate people checking out my book. That supports uh, supports me and my. Well, actually, mostly, mostly it supports the University of Kentucky and the University of Northern Kentucky at this point. <laughs> Two college well, kids. So, yeah, right. Exactly. Well, we'll be uh, excited to read that and we'll make sure and link to the, these books and and, uh, and things in the show notes. So anything we talk about here, you make sure to go to our website at libertarianchristians.com. Look for this episode and you'll be able to find this here. So finally, where where else can we can we find you on the net? Let's go through that again. Yeah. So I've got my own website, michaelmeharry.com. So it's just my name spelled out. And uh, I have uh, mostly what you'll find on there is my podcast. Uh, I do pretty much a weekly podcast. It's it's just 10 minutes long. It's basically me talking about whatever issue related to decentralization and the Constitution that happens to be bouncing around in my head that week. Uh, but I also post some articles. I've got a Constitution 101 section on the website that actually goes through all of the various clauses, like your general welfare, your commerce clause, your supremacy clause. And I explain what those meant according to the founders who were supporting ratification of the Constitution. So that's a really good resource. I also have some of my own music on there. I, I uh, piddle around with music as a, <laughs> kind of a mental outlet. So that's on there. So pretty much everything about Mike Mike Meharry, you can find uh, on michaelmeharry.com. I'm on Twitter, mmeharry, 10th, 10th is the number, 10 with the T-H. Uh, I'm a pretty lame tweeter. Uh, I'm, definitely, <laughs> so I'm, definitely, I'm definitely no Tom Woods. Uh, I mostly tweet about uh, tweet out articles and stuff that, that are from the 10th Amendment Center or from my own, my own website or things that I find interesting. And uh, cool. then... Uh, then I have uh, another little side project called Godarchy.org that people uh, might be interested in, where I just kind of explore uh, my faith and its intersection with government. So, kind of a, a voluntarist, uh, anarchist view, very different from the Tenth Amendment Center. That's for sure. yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, someday we'll get you back on, and we'll talk primarily about that sort of stuff and talk about your journey there. But uh, Mike, it's been an, an honor and a pleasure to have you here. We're so grateful for your work with the 10th Amendment Center and beyond. And uh, and man, it's, it's always good to talk to you. We're so grateful to have you on this evening. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, it's good talking to you. It's been, it's been a while, so it's good catching up. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. We'll catch you next time. And for everybody listening, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. 
The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.